Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It was chicken from a chicken originally. His flesh had been cloned and the chicken was still alive. And yes, I ate it under the watchful eyes of all these PR people. When something, especially meat, because it, you can, it can kill you, bad meat. When, when it's wrong in your mouth, your brain says, spit that out. And I was sort of sitting there chewing with all these PR people nodding at me. Yeah. And I literally didn't eat meat for four or five days after that for all the wrong reasons. Today, I'm proud to have on the On The Edge with Andrew Gold podcast, one of the preeminent and most prescient journalists working in the UK today in the form of Jenny Kleeman. Jenny is a journalist and presenter who has made documentaries for the BBC with Panorama and Channel 4 with Unreported World. She's also a presenter for Times Radio and has reported for HBO's Vice News Tonight and the BBC's The One Show, and recently appeared as a guest on the Joe Rogan podcast, which we'll talk about. But mostly, we'll be discussing her brilliant new book, Sex, Robots and Vegan Meat, which has been described by the New Statesman as Louis Theroux channeling Margaret Atwood. So you can't go too wrong with that mix. She looks at the technological advancements and the morality thereof in the domains of sex, food, birth and death. It's not, says the blurb, science fiction, nor is it about what might happen one day. It's about what's happening right now. Are we about to change what it means to be human forever? We'll go from super realistic sex robots to the chicken nugget Jenny ate while the chicken from whence it came still lived. We'll move on to growing babies in Ziploc bags and the death machines that'll bring about a peaceful end. Find Jenny on Twitter at at Jenny Kleeman and get her book in all the usual places. I'll have a link in the show notes. I'm on andrewgold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram and the video version of this podcast is on YouTube. If you're new to the podcast, please do subscribe and check out other episodes. The man we talk about at the end, for example, Dr. Death, was actually in last week's episode at Jenny's recommendation. For bonus interviews for patrons, I ask Jenny the 10 Inside the Actors Studio questions and she gives some of the most incredible answers. So head to patreon.com slash andrewgold or just get the Patreon app for that. You can also now sign up directly through Apple because they've just started these new subscription programs. So next to the subscribe button, there might be a join button depending on whether that's already been rolled out by the time this episode airs. So have a look. If you're subscribing, there might be a join button uh, which works just like Patreon. You'll get the ads free, early episodes and bonus interviews. Uh, If not, that will be up there soon. But for now, 
Here's Jenny. I am very well. How are you? Good, thanks. You look like you look. I, I am who I am. You look like, you look like you've got some serious podcasting equipment. It's good, isn't it? It's uh, cheaper than it looks. Well, I don't know how it looks. but It looks know. very impressive. I'm going to put you full screen so I can yeah, I'm gonna see it properly. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'll press record now. Okay. Okay. Great. Right. Recording. Don't say anything, you know, untoward. Racist no. and transphobic. No, I won't. <laughs> There's enough of that in the book. <laughs> no, there, there, was, there isn't. There isn't. I read your book. Loved it. I've loved it. I told you that like 10 times. I've checked in with you to tell you how much I, I love all, the, all that stuff about the future and everything. So congratulations on a, on a fantastic book. I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you read hmm. it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? I don't know. I'm at a point where I don't know if I'd be honest if I didn't like it. I mean, I did, but I don't know if I'd be honest if I didn't. Well, you know, like when people spend a very long time writing these things, they get they take it very personally. So uh, they want everybody to like it. And even when people say they like it, you think... Are they telling the truth? But no, I'm I'm really happy with it, so I'm glad you like it. It's doing well on, on Goodreads. I try not to look at Goodreads. I try not to look. <laughs> at, at first, I didn't know what Goodreads was, and then another yeah. author told me about it, and then then you do become kind of um, obsessed with it, and then some idiot gives it one star. Somebody's gave me a one star review saying I saw all the quotes from the Bible, and so I uh, I immediately stopped reading. And there's one quote from the Bible. And then I realised I was taking it all too seriously, so I've stopped looking at my reviews on Goodreads. But I believe they are very good. Yes. <laughs> I read that review because I do that thing that I think you probably did for your own book as well, and everyone does for everything, which is just like look for the only one stars. It was like one out of every hundred. <laughs> so I was like, what? Because it's just interesting, isn't it? Why do people dislike a book? Yes. And I saw that quote and I thought, what? What Bible quote? I don't remember that at all. There's one quote about um, uh, man created uh, woman Eve to be Adam's servant, which is in the the sex. No, no, no. Actually, there's two quotes. There's that. And then uh, there's the bit. No, it isn't even a quote. There's a bit where I talk about um, the history of surrogacy and the uh, traditional surrogacy. But, you know, it's not even a quote from the Bible. I mean, anyway, yes, I try not to read the reviews and I try not to take things personally. But all people who write books are, uh, are obsessed with feedback because you're all this time on your own writing things on your own. And then it goes into the world. You want to know what people think of it. How long did it take? Because there was one point in, in the narrative where you say, you know, four years later, I'm yes. speaking against her. How, how did this come to be? The entire thing took five years, but I wasn't working mm. only on it for five years. I was doing lots of other things. I also had a baby during that time. So um, mm. the reporting took place over five years, um, uh, but the actual writing of it probably took about nine months. It came about right. as a series of, out of a series of articles I was writing where there was a kind of common theme, which was about mankind's desperate attempt to control the fundamental elements that make us human and I realized that I started looking at the death the stories in the death section and then I did sex robots and I thought sex and death if I can find something with birth and something with food I've got you know the the four fundamental pillars of human existence and there's a book in that that's what I was going to ask yeah why those four and because they, they definitely loop together Oh, but but God, yeah, so what is the four fundamentals? So what do we have? Birth, death. Birth, food, sex, and death. And in fact, that's the kind of fundamental existence of any animal's existence that we're all, we all come out of our mother's bodies, we eat food, we seek out sexual relationships, and then we die. And it's always been uncontrollable 
by and large, I mean, you can say our food supply has been more controllable than any of the others, but by and large, we're all kind of uh, slaves to nature in, in those four areas. And so this was about the kind of unintended consequences of trying to use technology to control them. How was uh, Rogan? And I only ask because it's become a f- sort of phenomenon. On its- and I didn't get time to listen. I read the whole book, but I didn't get time to listen to it. Uh, so how was it? Well, you've got your priorities straight there. Um, how was it? Um, it was an amazing experience. An amazing experience because the way that I got on Joe Rogan was that I went to Joe Rogan's website and there was a form saying, you know, contact Joe Rogan here. And I sent an email saying... I think Joe Rogan would love my book. How can I get a copy over to him? And then I got an email saying, would you be available to talk to Joe at this time? And I said, yes, I would. And then, and then at first I thought it was some elaborate stitch up. And then I was kind of, I'm sitting where I am now, ready to go. And, And then, then up onto my screen came Joe Rogan. And so he really is what he claims to be, which is a completely um, self-made person. It's just him and a producer. And he, you know, people think that there's some kind of giant conspiracy deciding who he speaks to, but it's, he huh. just very much chooses everyone he wants to speak to. And he was a fascinating person to speak to. He's really, really smart uh, without being intellectual. Uh, so he's kind of has ideas and thoughts that he wants to talk about that are incredibly left field that I never thought about talking about before. So, um, wow. so yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking to him. It was crazy. It was crazy. And then the response after it came out was crazy. I hadn't quite appreciated how many people listened to that podcast, but a lot of people do. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, oh, I feel under pressure just from what you were saying about Rogan's questions, because mine are quite uh, <laughs> mundane. But also he gets into, he's in a position now where he can really just, if he wants, he can be horrible. Did any, were any of his questions not nice? No, but a lot of them were mad. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like he wanted to talk about uh uploading your consciousness into the cloud and all right. sorts of things that i ha- you know i can talk about but i haven't done lots of reporting on so it became right. a kind of much it was it was it was kind of a very kind of left field conversation but in a in a good way were you sweating like oh god what's he going to because you want to be like i'm a, i'm going to answer i can answer everything but you never you never said you were an expert about everything but then if you don't answer it, it did you feel that way at all i didn't feel that way at all i felt afterwards i couldn't because it was quite late at night and then i couldn't sleep for about 2 hours afterwards <laughs> Because my head was kind of fizzing with ideas. I hadn't done enough research on him and I hadn't realised how personally he would take um, the whole eating meat is bad for the planet thing. My husband's a bit like that of kind of like, I don't want to hear it. I really like eating meat. Um, Ah. And so when we we went into the, the, the part of the interview where we were talking about meat grown in labs and I was sort of laying out the kind of argument for this kind of technology, he was like, well, that's contested, isn't it? I mean, eating meat is not bad for the planet. I was like, well, kind of is. And it's bad for your bodies. Well, no, that's not true. So I hadn't really appreciated that. Um, And Mm. I found myself making making really pro-vegan arguments for him, which is crazy because I'm not a vegan. And then I got lots of messages from vegans afterwards saying, thank you so much. (laughs) which was kind of crazy but anyway no it was a great experience oh man that's because he's just obviously he's done like thousands of podcasts with other people who are experts and but it's interesting to hear hear how you speak of him and everything because obviously he gets a bad rap and stuff i think because of how he was in the past and some of the people he's had on so it's interesting to sound you know seems like he was a he gave you i have nothing but positive things to say about him i mean he was really really he Mm. was a really 
great to me and i really really enjoyed our conversation it was really good that's cool you know um i haven't seen this before but when i got your pdf it's got like my name written all over it have you seen that as a obviously it's nothing to do with you but when they send it out the pr people and i guess it's done so that if it fell into the wrong hand like got everywhere it would be like my guilty face you know so it's really funny like it's in big writing i'm just going to show you no one will be able to see this because it's all you see that it's like there oh my god i was completely not aware that they did this wow yeah i know i knew, I knew so is that on would... every page you were seeing your own name in giant letters every two pages yeah i'm really sorry there it is again <laughs> <laughs> and it, what's funny about that is like there's a bit I, so obviously started at the beginning as one does with a book and it, uh sex robots and there was a lot of stuff about, you know, you're saying, you know, what kind of person would like a sex robot? And I kept just saying, Andrew Gold. Andrew. And I thought, oh, God, this is really accusatory. Like, what have I... Leave me out of this, Jenny. Come on. Sorry so, about that, Andrew. By the, by the end, I got so used to it, I don't even remember anymore. But probably had some subliminal effect on me. But yeah, so you say at the beginning of the book, you, you want to talk about people who are changing the world. But you also said that, I think you said all of them or nearly all of them, uh, were in it for some sort of fame themselves. What do you mean by that? I think that the people who I encountered in reporting the book were all, they all wanted some kind of professional validation and they wanted respect from their peers and some of them wanted to be very famous and, you know, Elon Musk and uh, Steve Jobs came up a lot as names of you oh, know entrepreneurs okay. and people who'd come up with some majorly disruptive technology. And these people all kind of saw themselves in the same mould as that. Um, I mean, maybe less so for the lab-grown meat. Or, well, no, some people definitely did want to be famous for, for being the first and, and the best who, who were making meat in a lab. But, um, you know, most of them... Um, you know, they had egos and they, they, they wanted their, their technologies to be vehicles for them to achieve fame and validation. Do you ascribe to that philosophy that there is no unselfish act? <laughs> uh, no, I'm not quite that cynical. I think there yeah. are unselfish acts, but yes, yeah. there are, there are, yeah. I mean, you can, you can find, you can find selfishness in everything, maybe, if you're looking for it. But no, I think no, I think most of us, I think most of us are motivated by the pursuit of, of validation. I mean, why did I write the book? Why do you do this podcast? So it's not necessarily a bad thing per se. Um, the problem is when you're claiming to be doing it for purely the benefit of mankind. Yeah. And uh, when that isn't really your prime motivation, your prime motivation is something else, either making money or, or making yourself famous, then that's where yeah. it becomes a problem. It's ego, isn't it? Yeah. That's why I do it. You're right. That is why, why, well, it's why I do everything. I think, I don't know. I, if I go too far down that rabbit hole, uh, it's, yeah, it's depressing, isn't it? Um, so sex robots, right? How will sex robots change us? Well, in lots of different ways, there is a kind of classic feminist argument that once it is possible to buy a very hyper-realistic sex robot, and by and large, they are going to be female robots. There are very realistic male sex dolls being made at the moment, but they are bought by gay men generally. Women don't tend to buy this stuff. Heterosexual women don't buy this stuff. And I, and I think gay women don't buy this stuff either. There is a feminist argument that this is going to objectify women further because you're going to be used to having these impossible bodies that they look like surgically enhanced porn stars. 
Um, and also there is a feminist argument that people will be abusive to these robots and get used to being abusive to things that look very, very lifelike and are female. And I kind of buy that, apart from the fact that they're very, very expensive, these robots. So I think if you have fantasies about smashing something to pieces, you need to be very rich to, to do that. <laughs> Um, yeah. No, I mean, for me, I think all of that is true. And I think the the objectification argument is very true, that if you're used to literally being able to treat something as an object, because it is an object, mm -hmm. then you will treat people in the real world that way. But for me, the danger is kind of much bigger and much broader. And it's that once it becomes possible to have a relationship where all that matters is um, what one half of the relationship wants, Uh, what you want to do, what you find funny, the music you like, the mood that you're in. Um, when it's possible to have a completely selfish relationship, it is going to erode the human capacity for empathy and real human relationships are going to seem like hard work. And that doesn't mean to say that human beings won't be able to have relationships with each other. It's just in the same way that People are addicted to their phones and I am incredibly addicted to my phone and that I will watch television with my husband and be on my phone constantly. We will just fall into a pattern where we get this instant gratification from an artificial companionship rather than real companionship. And that will make us a little less equipped to have those real relationships. It was so funny reading it because my first thought is like, you know, sex robots. It seems ridiculous. You're imagining the movie that you referenced. Was it Lars and the Dying? Lars and the, yeah, uh, Lars and the Real Girls. Yeah. Real Girl. Why die? I must be thinking of something else. Um, which I've seen bits on on, of, on TV is Ryan Gosling. Uh, and you, you think of someone like that and you think of like a piece of plastic or something. Uh, but even when like the ones you describe, which sound very lifelike, and I looked on Google as well, they don't actually look yet like indistinguishable no. from humans. So whenever I'm imagining a sex, I'm imagining something that doesn't look human. And I think it's almost impossible for any of us to really imagine what, you know, somebody walking in and you wouldn't know the difference. And I wonder if that might change how a lot of people, do you think we all have them? I think you mentioned in 50 years, people might be getting married to them or something. Well, there is a, a theorist called Dr. David Levy who's, who argues that. Um, mm. I don't know about that. I think that the technologies that we have at the moment, yes, they are completely not what we're expecting when you say a sex robot, which is you're imagining something that that we've seen in science fiction. I think, though, there's going to be enormous advances in robotics and uh, who knows what robots will look like in 20 years, let alone 30 years. I'm pretty mm. sure that in 30 years we'll have something extremely convincing. And a lot of the, uh, the Chinese robots that are being made are very realistic. They move in a very realistic way and they have, you know, thousands of muscles in their faces and um and can pull expressions in a very realistic way um but yeah the difficult things are not what you think it's actually walking is is the most difficult thing is getting a robot that can walk around is very right. very difficult mm, that's no good is it i wouldn't want i don't think i'd want one at all i'd like to think i wouldn't want one is it not the natural extension of pawn in some ways and we've toys and pawn and things like that it, uh, do you feel the same the, the the issues you might have had with uh robots Do we not have the same issues already with porn the way that some people might watch very aggressive, violent porn? Yes, I think I think that's those are. Yes, I, I think you could definitely make that argument with porn in that that it, um, mm. it erodes your capacity for empathy. If you're used to if you're being bombarded with images of people being treated in a certain way, which is not normal in normal sexual relations that you're, you know, be having sex with five people all at once and all your anyway whatever <laughs> it's it, yeah we're not going to go down that road yes I, i i think i think it it is but i think 
for me, the, the main issue and the main concern actually isn't about the sex. It's about the companionship. It's about the fact that it's um, it's a substitute relationship, which bleeds into many more areas of your life. You know, it's it's not just about something you have sex with. It's about your personal domestic echo chamber. It's about um, your ability to have a conversation, and um, and that's actually much darker because it's you know. You, it's going to be the thing you love more than anything else in in the world. If it's you know you can you can program it to yeah. to, to be ha- however you want it to be, and and as such, it's going to you're going to have a very intimate relationship with it. It's going to know your hopes and dreams. It's going to be able to sell you stuff and recommend that you vote for certain people. You know the implications of that are enormous and go beyond sex. I would say. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing that I had never considered is that, you know, we all talk about Alexa and it's probably just heard me now that my Alexa mm-hmm. and Google and all that stuff, but sex robots might be spying on us. Yeah, I mean, and I can't think of a more powerful marketing tool than, you know, for example, if you could hijack someone's partner and get them to recommend stuff or criticise stuff or uh, push you in a certain way or collect data on you, it's the most intimate relationship in the world. It's the one that you're most relaxed about. You know, the, mm. the implications of that are enormous. Oh, my God. Let's move on to, because I'm conscious of the time, right? And I'm trying to do, I've, it's like a, the first time I'm really going like quarters here. I'm like, okay, I've got to watch the time here so I can get to cover everything. The next bit is vegan meat. Yes. You are not a vegetarian. No. Or vegan. I really, I really like meat. Why do we as people, humans, like meat? Well, that's the question. <laughs> There's a kind of... <laughs> Um, unquestioned assumption that it's because it's natural, it's because we were designed to eat meat and that it's part of our culture and part of our physiology to um, to eat meat. Um, and so the people who are growing meat in labs argue that um, they are fulfilling a fundamental human need, uh, but instead of growing meat inside of an animal, they're growing it in a lab. So they're giving us what we want, but producing it in a different way. But through the course of writing the book, I kind of began to question that and look at the extent to which eating meat is cultural rather than kind of biologically necessary. And the thing is, we could all survive without eating meat. I know, having written a chapter of my book where I list all the different ways that it's morally indefensible to eat meat, yeah. I know that it's morally indefensible to eat meat, but I, but I still do eat it because I have been... You know, I have been given it by my parents at a young age. I've got a taste for it. And I've been, um, you know, I, I've been, it's 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 part of my diet. Now, I, you know, if I was a, a kind of a better person in the face of all of the logic, I would stop eating meat. I mean, yeah, I'd stop eating meat altogether. But I think maybe I'm running ahead of myself here. But I think part of part of the problem at the moment is we're living in this world of carnivores and vegetarians or vegans. And there is such a kind of, philosophy behind being a vegan there is such a political position behind being a vegan that it becomes this all or nothing thing that you're either either a good person or a bad person and there is no actually you can be somebody who eats meat occasionally or once a week um and if you if that was a, a an accepted way of of being then perhaps more people would do it more, more people would be drawn to that kind of half vegetarianism or veganism if it wasn't so totalizing and absolute and that's what i think needs to happen i think that's the answer is for us to all eat a lot less meat um so yes i eat a lot less meat now and so in terms of why do we eat meat some people would say it's because we are primed to eat meat but i actually think it's because 
we um, are socialised into eating meat and having a taste for it. Because when you actually think about what meat is, and particularly when you think about what dairy is, it's pretty disgusting. Yeah, and that's a problem. So I'm a vegetarian, which because of what you were saying in the book about dairy um, <clears throat> and the fact, we you know, it, I, it's no better than anything else. But I, I, I know exactly what you mean with the whole vegan thing. And it's really frustrating. It's really such a shame. And and you also, I think there were one or two other points in the book where you did, you sort of very subtly referred to not necessarily cancel culture, but but the way that we are so angered by anybody saying one thing or another. And it sounds, is that something that, that you, I mean, I guess that makes veganism difficult as well. If you If you slip out of line one time or you don't do exactly the right thing. Oh, yes. man. I think we love judging people. You know, and, yeah. uh, um, you know, veganism, there is a, a, a in, when you're talking about ethical veganism, which is I don't eat meat because I care about animals and yeah. I'm so full of love for animals. It becomes this totalizing thing that where, you know, obviously there's, a, there's somebody in, in my book who I speak to who won't call himself a vegan anymore because somebody asked him what app does he use to pick his wine um, because he, ha- he should have vegan wine. And it's like, it, you know, it's it's such a shame that, this energy is spent on those kinds of arguments because we we like you know we like being able to say okay you're in you're out cancel you as you say yeah because this is how I feel about it since going vegetarian and it was a few years ago and the only reason it happened I thought it would be impossible because I I had meat with every meal mm. and I lived in Argentina for six years mm. it's, yeah meat 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 just sniffing it smelling it. you can't move for meat and uh my girlfriend, she's a lawyer and she did some law course at university that was an animal rights one. And then she came out of it going like, never, okay, I can never eat meat again. And for about a few weeks, I was like, well, I still will. But then we just went, every restaurant we went to and then the food we cooked and stuff, she didn't want meat in the house. And after like a couple of months, it was like, I'd forgotten what meat even, I don't yes. care. It was that well, easy. Well, this, this is the thing. For me, I discovered that most of the time when I have lunch, I have a vegan lunch Right. that is incidentally vegan. You know, there's a lot of delicious things that are vegan yeah. that don't come with this sense of moral superiority of, oh, I'm having a vegan lunch today. It's just, <laughs> you know, and that's the answer to it is if we yeah. if we just look at it as food and it just becomes normal to have things that don't have meat in it all the time. The problem is that culturally we have put meat as the centrepiece of our meal. And now as now that we get more affluent, we want to have that centrepiece in every meal. Yeah. And um, you really, really don't need to. And I, you know, I think we should go back to having a big, you know, Sunday roast once a week or, you know, some some big, you know, that's the way to make it an, an, an occasion rather than just casually having you know, ham in everything, <laughs> whatever it is, you know. Yeah, it would make it more more of a delicacy as well, I suppose. It would be more yeah. enjoyable once a week. And people would spend more money on it. So the animals would have a a, a better life and you, it wouldn't be this kind of casual consumption of, of, of factory animals. Yeah, for me, it was a lot. You talk a lot about uh, an ick factor. And for me, that's what it was my whole life. For whatever reason, it wasn't it wasn't this like, uh, I'm so great, I don't want to eat animals. It was just like, there's a dead animal right now in my mouth that and for like, you know, 28, 29 years, I just went, no, don't think about it. You know, because people if, if something that we don't typically eat ends up on your plate, you go, Oh, God, oh, take that back. I don't normally eat that thing. But for some reason, we got so used to it with chicken and beef and stuff that we don't even Oh, we don't. Speaking of judging, uh, by the way, I, this is something I wonder about when I'm writing and stuff. And it's a, it's something that journalists and I, I ask other journalists this as well when they come on. When you write about someone and people, you spend years, you meet all these people, and your your job is to tell the truth about these people. 
But sometimes there's somebody like, um, there's one fella who was doing this robot stuff and he'd come over from Cuba and he'd been looking after his grandma and it was his whole mm. life. And then you said uh, his robot was a mess and that's his whole mm. life. How <laughs> do you, how do you feel about writing that? Cause he might, he's presumably going to read that. And how, how do you feel about that? I feel, I feel absolutely no, I have no qualms in, in saying that his robot was such a mess and he was taking money from people for it, for pre-orders. Oh, okay. So, yeah. you know, he, he was misleading people on his website about what he was doing. So, no. Uh, also, I feel that, you know, he had his brother who was a PR person who should have, you know, they, they knew what they were doing in having a journalist uh, uh, come and, and, and cover their work. No, I mean, I, um, but there are other people in the book who I, I do feel like, for example, Bruce Friedrich from the Good Food Institute, who I spoke to about the, the meat part of the book, who I have so much respect for, and I think he's so remarkable. Um, and I really want my respect for him to, to shine through. And I, yeah, I, I wasn't, you know, I think when I, I sometimes feel a bit bad because when people agree to an interview with me, they don't realise that I'm going to uh, describe in so much detail yeah. the, the scene that I'm sitting in with them and what it's like to be in their company. And they think maybe I'm going to just use a, a few quotes. And so I feel sometimes bad about that. But then I also remember that most of the time I'm I'm interviewing people in their professional capacity where they're talking about their product or they're talking about the organisation that they're they're working for. Mm. The the ones that I worry about are where I'm talking to regular members of the public, like you know Leslie at the end of the book who um, who helped her friend to die. Yes. Although she was working for an organisation as well, but at first she was. So I worry about those people, and you know now I feel I feel torn in a way because I have a dual responsibility to to my readers and and to my interviewees, and I guess the answer is to to be honest and to quote people faithfully and to interview people at length and and give them a chance to really speak yeah i don 't ask that from at all a judging position it actually comes from a, a learning position myself i think it 's one of the the very very few criticisms people have of the podcast sometimes they say oh i wish i just wish he'd uh he'd challenge a little bit more just and i'm like well I, oh, they've given up their evening or their afternoon to like come and do this there are you know? enough podcasts and there are enough journalists who do those sorts of challenging interviews because those challenging interviews sometimes become about the journalists showing off about how tough they are and how yeah how uh you know how they can put people on the spot generate news lines and frankly i'm much more interested when i interview people in hearing what they've got to say um so you know you you let you let your listeners make up their own minds yeah i don't yeah hmm. i was so upset about that chicken nugget because it was apparently horrible this chicken nugget you had and that was real ch chicken but not from a chicken right it was chicken from a chicken originally so yeah. it was it came from a chicken and they had the the chicken had been uh his flesh had been cloned and the chicken was still alive and yes i ate it under the watchful eyes of all these pr people having been given this quite absurd and ridiculous tour of this yeah. uh san francisco startup where all i w wanted was to talk about the meat and then but then they had to show me all this other stuff and there was a lot of smoke and mirrors and yeah i ate it and it was it was really disgusting because it it Tasted of chicken because it was chicken, but it had completely the wrong texture. And food mm. is such an intimate thing. And I think we're, we're evolutionarily wired to um, when something, especially meat, because it, you can, it can kill you, bad meat. When, when it's wrong in your mouth, your brain says, 
spit that out. And I was sort of sitting there chewing with all these PR people nodding at me. Yeah. And I literally didn't eat meat for four or five days after that for all the wrong reasons. Maybe that's the job. Yeah, maybe that's what it's supposed to do. It stops you. It's the best way of <laughs> veganism. Make you feel so disgusted that you'll never go back. Well, you know, it worked for four days. But then, yes, I did go back. <laughs> oh, man. It was such a shame because when you first took the bite, it sounded like it was great. And I was like, oh, fantastic. I'm going to be having these new chicken nuggets. Not that I'd be eating chicken nuggets anyway. Mm-hmm. Although I do now. So again, as as a vegetarian, as a vegetarian, because uh, the stuff, what I wanted to say is like, I don't know if you've ever had the stuff that's like tofu or corn or whatever, mm. the chicken, the ve- veggie chicken nuggets that are not made from chickens. As far as I can tell, they taste exactly like chicken nuggets, but without the sinewy, horrible, veiny bits. So mm-hmm. I, I think, but it might be that I've, someone could say, well, you haven't eaten meat in years and that's what that is. I don't know. Have you tried those ones? I haven't recently. Mm. I haven't really tried that kind of thing. I had an impossible burger when I was in America, mm-hmm. which was really just like a, a beef burger. Right. Really so I'm was. not wrong with that. that. That that does taste like, it does taste yeah. like it, right? Yeah. Oh, and it, but it, yes. yeah, it's the texture as well. It does. Yes. But, um, mm. but they're really bad for you. They're really, really processed. Really? And yeah, mm. they come from, you know, they're all sorts of different things mashed together. And mm. you kind of have to say, just don't, just eat something else. I I got so excited when I saw an Impossible Burger somewhere and I got it. And it, you, you're right, even like the, the drippy blood bit that I used to find disgusting. That was my worst part of the burger because it reminded me it was a real thing. Uh, even that was real, but I knew it was just beetroot or whatever it is. And mm. uh, I loved it. But now now you've ruined that for me. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> um, birth, right? Yes. I, I couldn't believe what's going on. And obviously it makes sense when you think about it. But, but that in, in California, there are just people who are just like, I can't have a baby right now and then they give you know i suppose poorer people they're just going oh we'll pay you some money and you just have the baby for us how does that yes work exactly is it does it does the father and the mother they both give stuff to the woman yes so it's third party reproduction sperm from the father egg from the person who's going to be the mother going forward and a an embryo is made which is implanted in the body of a surrogate who sometimes doesn't know that she's carrying a baby for someone who is biologically capable of carrying a baby but just doesn't want to go through um the literal labor of um of having that baby um uh so yeah this happens um it happens a lot in California. Getting people to talk about it was quite difficult. I think you know, fertility doctors are happy to talk about it, but the actual people who do it, nobody wants to talk about it because it's so taboo. Um, but there are a lot of people who, I mean, I, when I, fa- I found on the internet, there are just lots of people, there are lots of people on mum's net who were saying that we'd definitely do it in a heartbeat if they could. Because I think we have, pregnancy is, is a wonderful thing. Uh, And you kind of have to say that because otherwise you're cast out into the wilderness. But it's also um, a pretty weird thing, pretty dangerous thing, pretty frightening thing. It can go wrong. Mm. And um, you're not really allowed to talk about all of that. And also it can do a lot of damage to your career as a woman and to your body. And, and, you know, men get to have babies without having to give up their bodies to them. So, um, so yeah, it sounds like I'm being really sympathetic to social surrogacy, which of course I'm not. No. Um, but there is a growing market for it. I think some things, and I think this is, you know, the, the culture you described of just like everyone's angry and on either one side or another side. Yeah. Some things are just messy and complicated. And I think you yes. get that across in your book. That's the area that I like is the messy and complicated gray bit in the middle. Yeah. It's not very fashionable. What's the point otherwise? 
<laughs> well, <laughs> the point is you get a lot more retweets and likes, I think, if you if you if you take an extreme position. But I I don't know. I like I mm. I think most of us actually exist in the messy middle. That's what it yeah. is to be human. Very few of us are, are cartoons on either side. I think that's great. That's what this podcast is about. It's why I called it On the Edge, because it's either talking to sometimes quite extreme people and it's sort of showing that they don't want to be extreme anymore. It's the middle ground. And it's just that middle bit, is it, it is quite messy and people... The birth stuff, I mean, it is just the image you conjured up of uh, just this outsource of labor to to people and it really creates... Is that going to happen more or is that just a really California thing? I think it's going to happen more. I mean, I think at the moment, I, I, found, I find the whole issue of surrogacy very interesting because as more gay people are getting married and having, you know, conventional families, there is a real market for people who can carry babies. And so there is, you know, at the moment, there's a lot of pressure on the UK government to relax our rules on surrogacy here. And, uh, and make make it easier for people to um, to have an arrangement with a surrogate. So I think those rules are going to change, and there will be you know there will be fewer questions asked about your reasons for wanting to get a, sur- a surrogate to gestate your embryo. But it's you know no matter how, and there are so many surrogates who say they are doing it to give a gift of joy to other people that they really enjoy being pregnant, wow. and that might be true. But nonetheless, you are literally, um, you know, outsourcing your body for for other people. And it is an ethically very murky area, I would say. Yeah. Can gay people, I've always wondered this, and the, the, the example, there was a couple in, in the book, and I guess they had one baby that was one of their sperm, and the other was the other. Can Is there ever, I've always imagined it as like, they both put their sperm in, this, is, <laughs> this sounds mental, and just sort of mix it up. I think some some gay couples do that. Yes. Wow. Um, I have friends. I have some gay friends who live down the road who have um, a son who was conceived and gestated in uh, using a surrogate, um, and I have never asked them who the mm. father of their baby is because you know I don't really want to know the mechanics of all of it. Although as their baby grows up, it becomes increasingly obvious who who the biological father of the baby is. Right. But I think yeah, I think some some gay couples do that. Yes, they and some gay couples are very deliberate in choosing. Actually, no, you will parent one child and I will parent another. Um, I think it 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 comes down to individual choice for each couple. Yeah, if I were gay, in a, I would like to be able to mix it up, and it's like, oh look, he's got my eyes, because that's what that's what's quite fun as a parent. Is I, I I haven't got kids, but like, like oh, it's a bit like me, and it's a bit like you, so I would want to mix it up. I think. I suppose otherwise, it would, it's probably offensive if you asked your friends like, who's the real father? That that must yes. be an offensive. But you yeah. can't mix up the actual DNA. I mean, the problem is right. you can mix up two sperm samples, and then it becomes a kind of competition of which sperm is fastest. Oh, and maybe okay. maybe you don't want to get into that territory of my sperm was faster than yours yeah. look it looks just like me if yours wins again yes exactly <laughs> oh no <laughs> i was i reckon one day they must be able to sort of put them together and oh i don't know splice them yeah splice up the sperm and well in one day one day well one day quite soon there is something called in vitro gametogenesis one day uh men and women will both be able to produce sperm and eggs they've done this in mice and so one day oh my god you will have a any single sex couples. You can produce eggs and and sperm depending on what you need. So, yeah, that will happen. 
I, I don't know. I find that quite cool, actually. And then also cool. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you're quite worried about, I find it cool because I just, I don't know. So the Ziploc bags. So that's, yes. you tell me about Ziploc bags. So they, they yeah. <laughs> I find this the most disturbing of all of the technologies I look at in the book, which is it's an artificial womb, which is effectively a plastic bag, a Ziploc bag, in which there is synthetic amniotic fluid. You put a fetus inside and you plug into the fetus's umbilical cord a, a device that, is, that oxygenates the blood and, and removes carbon dioxide and other waste products. And this has been done successfully with lambs. Um, and it's designed at the moment to, um, to improve the chances of super premature babies. And mm. there's some amazing images of these lambs in bags where you see them at one point in the pregnancy and, and they're, well, not the, in gestation because there's no you being pregnant with them. Right. Um, and at one point they're kind of pink and hairless and their eyes are shut. And then you see images from two weeks later and they've grown hair and they're, they've grown wool and their eyes are open and they're moving about. Not born, but completely independent of any you. Wow. How long do you think until you'll get a pregnancy and it will just be in the Ziploc? bag that that'll be it i think it will be a long time before there's a complete replacement for pregnancy for many reasons one of them is technological in that um so in fact there is a study about a month ago where um scientists in israel managed to grow um mouse embryos from conception to the middle of pregnancy so they've got the first half of pregnancy covered. The lambs have have been grown from the midpoint to the end of pregnancy. So theoretically, at least, we've got the entire pregnancy covered, uh, just period of gestation yeah. covered. But there is a point in the middle that we don't really understand. Um, and so, but we will understand it eventually. I think there's going to be a lot of um, ethical and legal obstacles to, uh, it's called ectogenesis, the, the complete you know, replacement of gestation outside the body, the human body. Um, but I do think it will be within a couple of generations, it will be both uh, yeah. technically possible and legal in some cases. Well, we'll see about the legal, but it will be technically possible, certainly, I would say. My girlfriend likes the idea of that. I mean, because she is a lawyer, you know, she's in her 20s and she, you know, and, and I know people who have privately to me said but women and men who have been in hiring positions who have said like yeah we sort of didn't want to hire women of that age yeah. for that reason so she would love that to happen and it's just you know she can still do her sports and her exercise and all those things she does kung fu and all that um can't do that when you're pregnant presumably no um so it sounds to me like this this would be amazing but then because you do look at both sides a lot you see a, a bit of a darker side to it Yes. I mean, this is the difference between a perfect world where that would be used to give women freedom and trans women and gay couples and anyone who might currently use a surrogate. And the real world where this technology could be massively uh, used to take loads of women's rights away. Um, and so, I mean, I don't even know where to start with, with how the, the danger with this technology is it's being developed with the most noble intentions to save the most vulnerable human beings on the planet, which is super premature babies. Um, it doesn't take that much of a conceptual leap to imagine that 
vulnerable could be defined as uh, babies growing inside the bodies of women who are behaving irresponsibly, who are drinking alcohol or taking drugs or smoking or eating the wrong kind of cheese or still doing kung fu when they really should be giving it up. And mm. you can imagine a world when, when we fetishize pregnancy and babies so much, you can imagine a world where the state could say, you're not behaving responsibly enough to continue this pregnancy we would like you to terminate your pregnancy. We're going to gestate it now in, in an artificial womb instead. And also so many of women's rights come from, uh, when reproductive rights come from the right um, to decide what happens to your body. What if it doesn't have to happen to your body? Why should women have the right to an abortion that will end a baby's life if this technology can exist to, uh, to rescue the baby's life? Um, so you could end up with a lot of women having babies that they never wanted to exist, existing in the world. Um, it's sort of the foundations of our, our right to an abortion come from the right to, to, to not have our, our bodies used against our will. So there's all of that. And then there are some really nasty men who just hate women and really love the idea mm. that, that women would be obsolete in a world of sex robots and, uh, and artificial yeah. wounds. And I think those people are a minority, but, you know, they are... They exist. So um, we need to ask these questions before these technologies come into being. And in fact, the answer, you know, you, if your girlfriend wants to carry on working, uh, then maybe we should have working environments that allow for the fact that this is how we reproduce the species rather than growing babies in, in bags. Yeah, but it's because you can set those sort of standards, but then people are going to be like secretly not hiring them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and this this happened to me, you know, when I was pregnant for the first time, I had lots of professional opportunities evaporate and I was very wow. naive. I, I told people I was pregnant before it was I was visibly pregnant and I saw those opportunities go. And I had people say, you know, I was talking about what I would want to do once I had the baby. And I had people who had been employing me say, oh, you don't know how you'll feel after you have the baby. You might want to just stay home and make jam. You have no idea how you'll feel. And this is women saying that. Yeah. you know not even men so um what's the answer though because i presume let's say and, and I'm, i am a complete newbie to this so i'm, I'm i, I want to be informed like so if you have your like a new startup and you can't really afford to employ a lot of people and mm. somebody who is pregnant uh, applies would would you also think oh god i don't know about that what do you do well i think your instinctive feeling would be oh it's really inconvenient but you know legally you can't discriminate against pregnant women but in in, in actual terms you would probably have that feeling of oh it's but that's because we live in a world where the state does not make it easy. If you know, if if, if it was easier for you, for, if the state a hundred percent supported you in hiring somebody else and paying for the maternity leave and making it all as smooth as possible, then there wouldn't be that kind of uh, that sense of of resentment or oh god, I'd rather not or or any of those things. But um, but you know, we don't live in that world. We live in a world a world of work built largely by and for men that women are, have uh, adapted to put themselves into. And part of, of that adaptation is for women to pretend that it's all totally fine. Oh, yes, I'll carry on working just as before. And even though I'm pregnant, yes, I can do everything all at once. I mean, we're all constantly pretending we can do everything all at once, women who have children. Mm, I'm so happy I don't have to do that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a fact. And you're having to kind of, you know, I'm I'm... Still all the time now. I mean, now that I'm an, you know, an old stick in the mud, I can, I'm much better Come at on. drawing boundaries. No, but I mean, I remember when, before I had children, seeing older women in the office who would always have to leave at five o'clock because they had to go and pick up their children and kind of rolling my eyes a bit about it. And now I'm just much better at, um, you know, now that I'm in that position, it's, 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 I have to draw that distinction. But, you know, 
I, I have in the past um, felt that I have to hide different, you know, caring responsibilities that I have in order to have parity with, with men that I work with. It's exhausting. Yeah. What is a, um, a a journalist such as yourself? What is your working life like? What what are you? I just, just I just started thinking about it. So you you wrote the book. Are you, are you writing other books and things like that? Are you articles at the moment. You can't yeah. I imagine do more documentaries, can you? With, with the COVID. No. Uh, so obviously, my background was in doing a kind of reporting that involved a lot of travelling. So um, I can't, haven't been able to do that over the past year. But I'm always doing a million things at once. I I present the breakfast show on Times Radio on. Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. So I get up very early at the weekends to do that. And then the rest of the week, yeah, I write articles. I've got big ideas and smaller ideas. So I've got big ideas for books and big ideas that could turn into documentaries eventually or podcasts. And then I have smaller ideas for articles. But even the articles that I write, they're never small. They're kind of, you know, four or 5,000 words and they take a long time. And um, so I'm always juggling lots of different stories at once and then juggling, you know, trying to be a parent and and all of the rest of it well the, the reason i ask this i think is just for, for myself everything i do is for myself it's because i am thinking about my future right and a lot of this kind of freelance journalist work so if i'm doing this podcast and writing and stuff is done at home mm. and i think if we have kids I'm, and i've voiced this concern many times i'm concerned that that holy my girlfriend will be off to do her law stuff from like whatever time to whatever time. And then I'm going to be at home working because you do this stuff at home, right? This is yeah. a lot of this is at home. And then it's going to be sort of expected of me to be also looking after the kids. What does one do in that situation? Because I've got to work. Well, um, it's all to do with your childcare arrangements. And in the acknowledgements of my book, Mm. Here's an exclusive for you. Go on. <laughs> um, so the, the final thanks in my book, it says the greatest thanks must go to Corrie Bramley, to whom I owe so much. Without her, every page of this book would be blank. And Corrie Bramley is my mother-in-law, who selflessly decided to come travel into London and oh. come in two days a week um, to do childcare. So I would work four days a week, two days a week, she would look after my children. The other two days I'd muddle through, we had childminders or, or, or different things. Um, but if I had not had her support for two days a week of knowing that I didn't have to pay for it. I wouldn't have been able to explore all of these weird and crazy ideas. I would all, I would mm. be constantly thinking about generating income. So she is the unsung hero of, of my career. I tried, I tried to sing her a bit in, in the book, but without her, I wouldn't have a career. Because <laughs> this is the thing we talk about, you know, men versus women and this kind yeah. of thing. But I also think freelance journalism is sort of yes. seen like it's not a proper job. Yes. Like it's an indulgence. Yeah. Oh, you want to go out and meet a sex doll today? I'll have yes. fun. Go on. Oh, oh, you think that person's interesting and you're just following you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and also you have to explore a lot of things that don't go anywhere. And sometimes you'll spend a very long time trying to stand right. something up that won't work. And then sometimes you'll stumble on something and it immediately is, uh, you know, a great idea that you can do in a million different formats. It's tough. And so you need to find a, an arrangement whereby you can do that exploring. And I, yeah, I'm mm. sure that if my mother-in-law hadn't offered to help me, um, I would have had to, I would have just been thinking about, you know, how am I going to pay my way and, and cover the cost of this childcare? So yeah, I hope you get on with your parents or your girlfriend's parents very well. Well, they live in Argentina. Mm, girlfriend's parents. Difficult. That's a long commute. <laughs> Tell me about it. Oh man. Let's move on to death, right? Yeah. Death. Um, Dr. Death. Yes. Philip 
someone. Nitschke. <laughs> what a character. This this guy, he's he's exactly someone I would like to interview myself. And I might even try yes. and do that if you know if you don't mind. I'm sure he would give you an interview. I'm sure he mm. would. Um Oh, I'd love that. He likes he likes being interviewed. Um so he is a fascinating man, a an Australian medical doctor, came to medicine late in life, and he for a fee, if you become a member, a paid member of his group, he will teach you how to kill yourself in the most efficient and painless and peaceful way. And he runs a group called Exit International, um, where people are members and they subscribe to his ever-evolving handbook, which uh, keeps you updated on on the, the best current methods to kill yourself. And he also runs different companies that sell you pieces of equipment that if assembled in a certain way might help you kill yourself. But of course he can't mm. sell you a suicide machine. And the issue is that there is a perfect way to die. There is a painless way of dying, which is a particular drug that uh, they give patient, they give prisoners on death row, they give patients at Dignitas, um, they give they give it to animals when they're put down in a vet's practice, mm. but it's illegal to own or possess privately almost everywhere in the world. So Nembutal. It is, yes, mm. Nembutal. Um, and I wouldn't recommend that people try and buy it because you can try and buy it online and you'll get fleeced. Um, mm. um, it's not something you can buy. And so instead he he tells people quite complicated different ways of of dying and he has invented this 3d printable death machine um which is supposedly the key to uh perfect death so this was actually the one bit i didn't fully understand in the whole book so i'm happy you mentioned that and it's only because and i could have just looked it up in a second but i didn't i thought i'll ask jenny about that um a 3d printer right that's that's a printer like with paper but instead you can have just stuff comes out of it so how can like a huge big uh because i looked up the this sort of coffin thing that kills you that he made yes. it's very space age and yes. I thought, how how's that coming out of a printer well you need an industrial 3d printer so you need the sort of 3d printers that don't exist on every every corner high street at all. Uh, but he imagines that in about 10 years time, everyone will have access to one of these things that you'll go along with your plans and print out your death machine. Fucking um, hell. <laughs> yes. And wow. it's biodegradable, this yeah. object, oh. so that it will both kill you and, as you say, you can be buried in it. So it's, it's, it's called Sarco. It's the sarcophagus that will kill you. My God. I think there was there was one thing I don't know if if I I think I'm going to say something controversial here. This is going to be controversial. Okay. And, and if this podcast does go out, well, it might go on the banner, the carousel thing. I'm waiting to find out about. It. I got a great photo of you. I've made it all nice with the logo. If it does, then lots of people are going to hear what might. I don't even know if it's a controversial thing to say. But there's a bit where where you say that he says, Doctor Death, he says that prisoners sentenced to life should have the choice to kill themselves. Yeah. And I found myself thinking. It's not a bad idea. Is that a bad idea? Well, I don't think it's... I think the whole point is these are all really interesting things to discuss. Do you know what I mean? I I think it's crazy because the whole point is states sentence people uh, to life in prison and uh, the idea that a state should be able to put you in in a particular state of being where you might then ask to die is what's worrying. But if you are facing um, being imprisoned for the rest of your life without any hope of release, um, then a lot of 
prisoners try and kill themselves by whatever means they can. And actually, it's awful and dangerous and and, and terrible. I mean, the thing is about Philip is half the time when he says things like this, I think he just wants publicity and he doesn't necessarily mean it because the whole point with the, the problem with that argument is that you're it gives the the sort of governments that are in power in places where people are imprisoned it, it means that they are able to um put people in a position where they will then choose to take their own lives which they wouldn't be otherwise Do you know what i mean you're, uh, you're kind of assuming that the government is is fair and the judicial system is fair and it's done the right thing and because this sentence has, yeah. has been reached it must be the right thing and that's what the problem is is that you know I think that's the problem with a lot of the the technologies you talk about. It's always that it could go wrong because it could be abused by how high yeah. the technologies in themselves and the ideas. Because to me, the idea that somebody who's sentenced to life is from a, on a philosophical level, if they, they go, okay, you know what? I'd rather just check out. I'm not going to cost the taxpayer any money. Uh, and I'm not going to have to sit here and stare at a wall for 70 years now. That yeah. sounds good to me. Yeah, I think I think the whole point is on paper it does make sense, but uh, and and you know and in the real world people do try and kill themselves, but also in the real world people are wrongly convicted, and in the real world people are given life sentences when in fact they they shouldn't be. Um, yeah. So yes, it's always messy. Your book is very creepy. There's lots of creepy bits. And I read at night. That's the only time I read. It's always at night before bed. But I think the one image that stood out more than any other for some reason was this the screen on his machine. I think it was his. That that you just basically push buttons and you go, you know, are you aware you're going to die if you push this? Yes, yes. Or no, yes. And it's just, you just click yes so that he's not killing the person. Yes. So that's, that's really a creepy image, isn't it? Yes, Yes, because what that is about is about the absolution of responsibility. So it, it's a it's a bit of software that supposedly is meant to demonstrate that you're entering into this of your own free will. But yeah. so so Philip developed this machine, a, a version of this machine in the 90s, when in this brief window where it was legal in the Northern Territory of Australia, it was legal for doctors to assist in their patient's death. And he, as a doctor, could have just given them a lethal injection. But instead, he used this computer to do it so that they had to press buttons saying, yes, I understand that if I press proceed, I'm going to die. Yes, I, I consent. Yes. And then the, the you know solution was put into their arms. And it's about how technology allows you to have a, a layer of moral distance from the consequences of your actions and that you can prove there's a data trail uh, but it wasn't me, you know, it was them. They did it through the machine. And and I just think, you know, that really speaks volumes because in many ways it's about it's about distance, isn't it? And it's about it's about not taking responsibility. Um mm. and ultimately, you know, and I say this in the book, I don't think suicide is never an entirely solitary act. You know, there are always the people who love you, the people who assist you, the people who find you. Um, and it's that's why it's much better. And I believe in the right to die very strongly, but that's why I think it's much better to not do it in this kind of do-it-yourself uh, libertarian way of I'm going to be in control of my own death and I'm going to download this device. I think we just need to work out a way of making it legal in, around the world for, for doctors to help people because then that's the only way for it to be done in a way that isn't incredibly messy. Man. I was just thinking about it. Sorry. It's just, yeah, it's really, it, it, I agree with you. I agree. I would like to, I would. I would make that legal as well um 
and just just that image as well yeah it really stayed with just i don't know why mm. that is it's just the buttons and <sighs> it's just so clinical you know so yeah. you, you don't want that to be the your last act yeah that's it you're like looking at okay my last that was it and you pointed that out as well actually it's just oh just it's very black mirror of course the whole book is you you've been compared to to margaret atwood like a louis theroux margaret margaret atwood that's that's a great combo isn't it Yes, I, I'll take that one. Yes, no, I, um, I have been. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm. You know, it, I've always found it very difficult because I don't think I, I fit into categories very easily. I'm not like your feminist journalist or your tech journalist or your crazy right wing person or your crazy left wing person, and um, and I think that's probably not helped me in my career. If I, if I could package myself more neatly, it would be easier to sell myself. Um, but yeah, I'll definitely take that comparison. That's an interesting thought in itself. I mean, do, do you find that? Do you find that other like fellow journalists, they're more neatly packaged so they can be yes. like, hey, I'm I'm the Guardian, I'm a big left, or I'm, I'm going to be a spectator? Or- yeah, well, not even in terms of their publication, but they're to be the go-to person to talk about this. Or certainly when it comes to books, so much of it is about how you're going to market it and which audiences you're going to market it to. Uh, is this going to be a book that feminists buy? Is this going to be a book that, uh, you know, people who are interested in business buy? Um, you know, and even awards, you know, awards are, are in categories for, you know, being, are you, you know, it, it's, is it a science prize that you could apply for? Is it, a, you know, all these different things. And if you're someone who just likes stuff because it's interesting, yeah. <laughs> there isn't really a category for that. I'd place myself in this kind of thing as well, the kind of stuff that I do, because it's, you know, an exorcist one week and then I'm with something without necessarily being too political one way or the other. And I think we are not necessarily a dying breed, but it's harder and harder, particularly on on TV, to get... You don't see many outside of Louis Theroux uh, presenter-led documentaries anymore. They want... And if it's a presenter, they want uh, a Professor Brian Cox. Yes, they want an expert. They want an expert, yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, They don't really want journalists. And at first I thought, I don't know, I think that some uh, more male journalists get to do it than than there are no female journalists doing it. I mean, there's Stacey Dooley, but she's not really a journalist. She's a presenter. Um, Mm. And uh, so, yeah, there isn't really a place for for that kind of thing. I mean, you know, there's, uh, what's he called? Simon Reeves. I can't, Simon Reeves. There are people mm. like that. But yeah, there isn't really a space for reportage in the same way. But there's sort yeah. of quirky expert-led stuff. There's just an unreported world where you've worked for. Yes. They're like the only, that's it. Yes, but even on unreported world, there is, yes. Mm. Yes, there is. But unreported world is a format. Um, you know, it's, it's quite structured. So it's yes. not like you as a journalist get to navigate your own path through a story yeah well that's gone now and and i get very bitter right because i go and i i don't know i and i'm not making a political point at all but i think it would be surprising the amount of i mean i would say a hundred percent of meetings i've been in for 10 years they've said to me we can't hire you can't be the presenter because you're white and male mm. and obviously from your experience the total opposite is true on screen than what's what with what's happening um and yeah it's i've i've sort of given up and i've I've ended up being very bitter with louis theroux because not that he even knows who i although he does follow this podcast on twitter so that's my sort of claim claim to fame but he talked about how it was in the 90s for a white man 
right? And, and of course, if you could argue that it's still that way in some ways, but not compared to the 90s anyway. And it was just like, people were like, hey, mate, do you want to make a series of like 10 documentaries that are an hour long? And he was like, oh, it's a bit much for me. And he, they were like, okay, well, you can just do six then if you want. And he was like, all right. Uh, and they were like, do you want your name put in the title? No one knows who you are, but do you want your name in there, Louis mm. through Weird Weekends? And he was like, oh, well, if you have to. And just that, <laughs> that's insane nowadays. That's just, that wouldn't yeah, happen Yeah, well, me, yeah, you, you know, we, you were in, born in the wrong decade. I don't know. I mean, for me, it's difficult. I, I grew up on all of that stuff and uh, people like John Ronson and Nick Broomfield, those are all people who are, who are my heroes. And I found myself... Uh, coming up with the ideas of the sort of things I write about. When I was a reporter on Unreported World and I'd have endless meetings. I mean, you, we both know what those endless meetings oh. are like with production and TV people who never say, they're just, anyway. They're, no, no, come on, tell me. I want, got, I want the gossip part because no, most they, of these podcasts just, don't. There's a, a lot of people who, who say, I love that idea, write it up, and then it goes nowhere and you're spending all your time yeah. doing that. Um, yeah. But I would come up with ideas and people say that's great you should send that to Louis Theroux's people and I would say well oh. well, that, well that's my idea <laughs> and so um yeah, yeah. I I feel that TV people have a definite idea of what they want and I don't think they want original journalism on screen being with stories being told by the people who mm. who uncovered them and um I think television is quite um is not the best place to tell stories I would say yeah. at the moment I'd say, and, and in fact, the, the, the best way to tell stories on television is not with on-screen talent. That's true. That's true. I think you're right. And I think you look back at it. I interviewed someone recently, Josh Baker. Do you know who he did? Um, I'm Not a Monster about ISIS and stuff. Yes. And he's a nice, lovely guy. And it was interesting because he did the podcast and they made a documentary of it on BBC. And he was talking about exactly what I'm sure you have uh, experienced yourself, which is that the, the documentary version was so lightweight compared yes. to the podcast. Because yes. you can't do anything. And you speak to someone for hours and they include about three minutes. So you must have, did you, did you enjoy writing the book a lot more because you get so yes. much more into it? Absolutely. And uh, and even, I mean, I, I got into a pattern of doing things for The Guardian where I was making videos. I mean, I went from doing Unreported World, I had my children, and then I make, was making videos for The Guardian and writing articles that went with the videos and writing kind of 5,000 word articles that went with, and, and you know, the videos I was making were kind of 15 minutes long. But I found the article so much more satisfying for me as a journalist because you could put yeah. all that detail in there. However, I think audiences are much more moved emotionally by what they see rather than what they read. So in terms of impact, you yeah. can have a lot more impact with a video than you can. Well, you can be a fantastically good writer, but you have to be really, really talented to have the same level mm. of impact with a piece of writing. Audio yeah. is somewhere in between, I would say. You can you can create a kind of atmosphere and have a level of detail. I mean, I, I made a, a podcast series about the story and I felt that felt satisfying in that I... I, I felt that my interviewees were able to talk at length and it wasn't constantly being reduced to... You, you didn't feel like you were stealing quotes from people like you can do with right. a television documentary. Yeah. That's what it yeah. is. You hear, you hear it and you're like, right, okay, don't have to listen for three minutes because I've just got that one thing I, I uh, yeah. did. I've got my bit, yeah. The, that's why the, yeah, the podcast is so much nicer. 
I think anyway. And you, yeah, it sounds. And your book was brilliant. I loved that. Are you writing something Thank else you. at the moment? Are you looking for next stuff? I want to. I am looking for the next one. I want to. I'm writing lots of articles. I'm writing lots of articles that might turn into a book. But ultimately, I need to be able to travel to write a book. So that so I'm waiting for all of this to end. And I'm very grateful for my radio show, so that um, I can still be alive and my children can still be fed during this time when I when I can't travel. Um, uh, but yeah, I've never done anything more satisfying in my entire life than writing that book. I loved every minute of it. Oh. And when when I did the final full stop and I had imagined, because I got my book deal uh, when my my daughter was four days old. I'd written this book proposal and then it was sent off on the day that she was born. And then I got my book deal. And yeah. so I had a kind of... Um, I had six months where I, I was just with my baby and not working on the book. And then I was writing. So it took, anyway, it took quite a long time to actually write the book. And I had imagined that I would like be uncorking the champagne when I'd finished it and I'd be so happy. But I was mournful. I was so sad that that process was over because it was the happiest wow. time of my life. So, Andrew, you should write a book. <laughs> I'm writing a book. <laughs> What's your book about? It's about the science of secrets. Ooh, that sounds mm-hmm. good. Yeah, well, this was, you know, it was a similar similar thing to you in some ways of constantly going to, with these ideas to people. I had all these people left. Some some people who've been on the podcast as well, who were just, everything was about secrets and stuff like that. Yours went to, was it Chris Doyle? Yes. Yeah, because <laughs> yes. he, he did John Ronson and Will Storm yes. as well. And yes. they're also brilliant, nearly as good as you. So I, I, I love the stuff that he that he does at, um, where is he at? at Pickerdor. Picador. Chris, you were talking about, yeah. He's fantastic, Chris. Oh, that was He's great. lovely. Right. So, oh, yeah. So I was just going to say, because you can see Sex Robots and Vegan Meat behind you. Yes. And is that three different covers? Well, it's it's been translated into lots of different languages and you can see I'm very bashful about it and I don't display it at all. But yes, uh, that's... The, Everyone does. You have to. <laughs> that's the Russian one. That's the hardback. That's the paperback. That's the American one. That is the Korean one. That's the Italian one. But there's quite a few others coming, which is very exciting. But then, is that better than seeing yourself on TV? Or your name on a book? It's amazing to see it in in different languages. Although it's been yeah. quite awkward because I've had to explain to my children who are very young what sex is far too early because they keep saying, "Ooh, sex robots and vegan meat." In lots of yeah, yeah. That's so funny because I was just thinking that my half sister's fourteen, and I was just thinking. Do I? Because sometimes I say you should listen to one of the podcast episodes, and I thought, oh, robots. She's fourteen. She can handle this. She can handle it. Oh God. Well, okay. I'm gonna, I'll say her name is Madison because she gets upset if she doesn't get her name mentioned on it. <laughs> Have you enjoyed this? Was it like fun? I've it loved right? it. It's been really nice, and like no other podcast that that, that I've done. And, really? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's been really, really good. The whole way through, I'm thinking, God, maybe she hates me. That's just my No, head. I didn't hate you at all. And also, I mean, it's really nice to speak to somebody else who has had, who comes from a similar lineage of having done TV things and being genuinely interested in things and good at what you do. But sometimes it's not enough in the industry that, that we work in. Um, mm. And maybe we need to one day settle down, you and me, with some beers and get really drunk and be bitter together. I'm absolutely up for that drink when I move back to the UK. Maybe I'll even record it for a future episode. If you want our 15-minute bonus chat, and Jenny gave some of the most well-thought-out and profound answers to my questions, head to patreon.com slash andrewgold or download the Patreon app. You'll also be able to listen to it on most podcast apps once you sign up. 
Here's a little snippet. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I had to think about this. I would like God to say, hello, Miss Kleeman. Mr. Hendricks has been waiting a long time to see you. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's such a Desert Island Discs response. (laughs) She goes on to talk very passionately about Jimi Hendrix, Prince, and the role of music in her life, as well as discussing everything from her favourite word to the jobs that she might like or wouldn't like to do. So that's patreon.com slash andrewgold, or download the Patreon app to get that bonus stuff, as well as other perks. Remember to check by the subscribe button on Apple. If you have Apple Podcasts, uh, you might be able to join directly there. That's being rolled out. So do have a look. Thank you so much to this week's new patron, by the way, who wanted to remain anonymous. I'm very grateful for your support. It was a pleasure talking to you, Jenny. Thank you so much for giving up your time for the show and also for recommending Dr. Death as an interview subject. His episode came out last week. I would definitely recommend Jenny's brilliant book, Robot Sex and Vegan Meat. The link is in the show notes. Find her on Twitter on at Jenny Kleeman. I'm on at AndrewGold underscore OK on Twitter and Instagram. And YouTube.com slash AndrewGold1 is where you can find the video versions of the podcast. So please do subscribe there. And also, while we're at the whole subscribing thing, subscribe to this show if you're new to it and share it around, tell friends. That's the only way it grows. And please leave comments and reviews if you're using CastBox or Apple. Thanks to this week's newest reviewers. Here they are. Yupfi in the States wrote Enrichment. Hi, Andrew. Laura here. I know Laura. My title is a summation of how much your podcast has made my life better. Your style, wit, gentle approach laced with charm is unparalleled. So many of your guests have provided virtual seminars that leave the listeners stunned, sad, shocked, laughing, etc. So thought-provoking as well. Anyway, we love you for enriching our lives. Rock on with your languages. Tout away or toot away. I don't know how to pronounce that. Tout. I know what it means. Like show off about your toot. It's toot, isn't it? You know, like a ticket tout, toot. Anyway, I know Laura from Twitter and deeply appreciate the lovely review. I hope that you and Benny, the Dachshund, are doing all right. And then there was D-N-D-A-N-J. That's a lot of letters, but that person with those letters wrote, one of the best pods. I have been hooked ever since discovering this podcast. It never disappoints with an eclectic mix of thought-provoking subjects, often untouched by others and never boring. I find myself wishing they were slightly longer, if only to sate my appetite for good discussion. Andrew has a great interview style for this type of show, completely unselfish, not too overbearing, or making it about himself, apart from when he reads out nice reviews about himself. Um, I've added this bit, by the way, this little aside. Um, I'm continuing the review now. Rather, he acts as a conduit for the person being interviewed to get their story out there and gives just enough to inform the curious mind to want to go and discover more on what is discussed. Highly recommended. That's a beautiful review. Thank you very much for those lovely, lovely words. Uh, it's such a pleasure getting notifications about them in the week, and it keeps me sane uh, while editing this whole thing. So thank you, everyone, for reviewing. Join me next week when my guest will be one of two people, depending on the schedules and everything. It might be Professor Sue Black, but not the Professor Sue Black I've already spoken to. That's the criminal anthropologist who was incredible. But another incredible person who is the computer scientist Professor Sue Black who helped to save Bletchley Park. 
the place that Alan Turing, uh, you know, the imitation game and all that, uh, and many other men and women, thousands of them, broke German codes during the war and pretty much helped the Allies to win the war. Um, so she's fascinating and can tell us all about computer science, her own incredible life, and Bletchley Park. Uh, I'm also working on an episode I did a few weeks ago with Coche Inciarte, who survived the Andes plane crash and had to eat his friend's dead bodies to survive. It's a pretty powerful one, that one, as you can imagine. Uh, So one of those should be next week. So either way, I hope to see you then.